Welcome to the third season of Diversify the Stand. Together we speak with a wide range of musicians who talk about topics that are important to them. I'm Carrie Blosser. And I'm Ashley Killam. We're so excited to dive into talks with a whole bunch of guests this season. If you like following along and are a fan of our podcast, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for coming to chat with us today. We're so excited to talk with you. Likewise. We'd love to start off just by hearing a little bit about your musical journey into what you currently do. Sure. Well, I was uh, born and raised in Canada. I'm from Toronto. I first came to music actually through explorations of theater and drama in high school. I went to an arts high school in my hometown of Markham in Unionville High. And that was sort of how I discovered a love of music was just partaking in some of the after school stuff there being part of the choirs, discovering that I really enjoyed singing, really finding my people. But then sort of having this also this theatrical impulse led me very naturally to musical theater and to opera eventually when I finally did get to college and um, sort of discovered this wide, wide world of vocal music. And I also had some mentors in my undergrad who really cultivated an interest in new music that they could kind of perceive in me. Just being able to collaborate and and, uh, create with composers really got me excited and so that's always been a big part of my artistic practice and yeah in my early years when I was freelancing I was doing a lot of stuff in Toronto my first couple years out of undergrad just kind of whatever there was around and a lot of it was ensemble singing and I found that I actually loved it and that was previously characterized to me as something that I would have to do but wouldn't necessarily be my central focus of my you know vocal development oh, you'll have to be in choir, you'll have to be a section leader, you'll, you'll probably do a lot of choral work, that's where the, the jobs are. And I was like, you know, actually, I really like it. So I actually do a fair amount of small ensemble singing now. And that's, that's always been sort of a backbone of my uh, musical life. And I love it. Like I, I do a lot of it here as well. I moved to the States for grad school originally and found that in trying to make my way in, in a freelance career here, it meant taking a lot of ensemble work as well, because there are so, so, so many church jobs <laughs> and in all of the cities that I've lived. So it's been a big part of it. Uh, but also that was around the time that I discovered as well, uh, kind of through necessity that I had an interest in administrating in arts organizations as well so collaborating in a different way and yeah as I say that was that was born of of needing to sort of find work to pay the bills but I discovered that I really had an interest in it and wanted to cultivate it a little more and was sort of on a parallel journey of finding my people here finding community finding where I wanted to set my roots down and also sort of on a personal journey of coming to an understanding of my queerness all of that sort of found me looking a little harder to align my artistic work and my administrative work with my values. And that's how we find me now. That's kind of where I ended up was founding Chamber Queer, helping to launch a a mentorship program for underrepresented individuals with tenant vocal artists here in New York City. Um, And I've actually also begun a PhD program at the Graduate Center at CUNY this past fall. And I'm hoping to sort of tie some of all of this together through my research and scholarship, really kind of looking at some of these social movements and how they inflect and affect our practice as artists, uh, specifically mine, but also my communities. So yeah, that brings us to the present. 
That's fantastic. I think especially over the last couple of years, that community aspect of music and practice and what people think you should do versus what you actually really enjoy doing is such an important thing. Because I feel like sometimes mentors and teachers are like, oh, this is a side note, you're going to do this just to pay the bills. But I think there are a lot of meaningful things you can find in that community too. Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think that that's shifted a lot even in the past two years or three years or five Certainly in the last two years, but even prior to COVID and prior to everything shutting down and us having it sort of a radical community shift, there was already sort of faster moving art zeitgeist in the artistic community, I think, than a lot of people who are teaching the institutions who are not necessarily as active in their professional careers were able to perceive. So, yeah, I think that's that's, you know, an absolutely central part of being an artist these days. I think so too. So we did want to spend a little bit of time. I'd love to hear more about Chamber Queer, how that got started, kind of what your organization is all about and kind of what's the deal. (laughs) Well, this is a perfect example, actually, of like community in, in practice, in action, because Chamber Queer was born out of conversations between friends, which is like how the best things get started. My co-founders, Jules, who's also my wife, and Andrew, he, uh, our other co-founder, who's a cellist, were having conversations after meeting and doing some gigs together about their sort of experiences moving through the classical music world as queer people, just feeling kind of like there, there wasn't a lack of acceptance necessarily that they were personally perceiving but just not necessarily a centering or celebration of that aspect of people's identity being part of what they're bringing into the room. Meanwhile, also having conversations with my friend Brian Mummert, who is our other co-founder and also a singer, because we were experiencing some, uh, you know, interest in building programming. That was our original conversation story about building programming, centering queerness of composers and performers. And Andrew had happened to see a Facebook post kind of to that effect that I had made sometime during Pride Month the previous year, saying like, yeah, there's queer theater, there's queer dance, there's queer visual arts, where's my queer chamber music? There's queer opera, you know? Um, And Andrew was sort of like, what do you think, uh, you know, of that? (laughs) Do you want to do something about it? And I was like, funny, you should ask. You know, I've been having these conversations with my friend Brian, and Andrew was like, I've been having these conversations with Jules, we should all get together and see what we think in common. And so that's exactly what we did. We had lunch one day, I guess it was late 2018, and just said, okay, what's the dream? What's your vision? If you had it your way, what would it look like? Um, And found the points of intersection and decided that we would, you know, write a couple of grants, let's see if we could get some funding together for maybe like a little performance. And in the meantime, we would do a workshop and we, yeah, that's exactly what we did. We'd sort of threw all our ideas at the wall, called all our friends who we thought might be sort of on board um, and allied with not just, you know, showing up and being queer in the music space, but also sort of building something that would be a little more intentional and actively welcoming and all of that, um, because that was really what we found was the central focus of what we all wanted to do. We had it at Branded Saloon in Brooklyn um, in Prospect Heights, and we sort of let some people know about it. I had a Facebook event, whatever. And it was packed. It was totally packed. And it's, I mean, it's not the biggest space in the world, but not everybody could get into the, the room itself, the people in the hallway and whatnot. And 
I mean, we just thought, okay, well, obviously there's some need and some hunger here for this type of thing. Um, what is it that we're providing that is really resonating with people? And that, so it's been an iterative exploration of that over the last few years. But we've sort of landed right now on a mission of performing and presenting queer composers and musicians, and now also sometimes other artists as well, like dancers or filmmakers or visual artists. Tracing a queer genealogy of some historical figures that are either it's it's not known or it's not talked about or it's not considered canonical knowledge of their queerness. Uh, so really finding those threads uh, it, within the tradition that we all share that can help us feel seen and represented. And also building an inclusive and intersectionally inclusive space for everybody in our audience, our artists on stage, everybody who's, who's there in the room. That means a lot of different things. Like we've always been cognizant of a connection with other social movements. The queer community has always been very strongly connected with disability rights, with the Black Lives Matter movement. And so those have also been conversations that we have when we're programming and choosing venues and figuring out who to work with and uh, what we want to be doing. That's sort of the not so short for of the history. It's great. And I think, I know when I found you all, we're going to, you know, talk about resources, but we need more groups like you all because it's so important. Carrie and I talk about this every time, every single like email we write and grant we write just to have that visibility and, you know, to move music forward, to have everyone in the audience and future music majors being able to see themselves and, yeah. you know, it, with their identities that maybe, you know, in the current state of affairs might not be accepted it makes it even more important that there are groups and individuals and organizations out there showing that like, yes, you are wonderful and unique and that is great. Yeah, exactly. And you can bring your whole self to this. You don't need to leave that out of your practice. You know, that, that can look like dress code. That can look like, you know, the music you write, you know, something as basic as dress code can also just, it sounds so superficial or, you know, like it doesn't, what could it really change if we gender neutralize the dress code? But oh my God, it's major for a lot of people. So things like that, that seems so easy to fix. Why, why not? And, and as you say, especially for, I think, youth, we, we think a lot about that as a, one of our more vulnerable communities and how could we can be going into schools and helping cultivate some space for those people who are finding their artistic voices to really be affirmed in in everything that that means uh dress code is big and even just like when i've gone and talked to different schools and, and college classes and stuff and just just talking and making you know pronouns aware and respecting people's pronouns you know in the classroom and when guardians are in a space oftentimes people don't think of but it makes such an impact and such a difference on just creating a safe space in our studio or wherever you are yeah absolutely and this is, this is something that we talk about with kids a lot, but it's also true of our adult peers, our, our, you know, people who find us and come to the shows or who become involved through playing with us or coming to a community event who didn't realize how important it was to just say their name, say their pronouns and have people just be like, cool, welcome. For a lot of people and myself included, I was late coming out for many reasons. It has been something that is part of certain parts of your life and then sort of siloed off from a professional part of your life, for instance. That is just so important for, for those people. 
you know, in classrooms, I've been working a little bit in middle schools this year, which is new for me. It's been very interesting to see how uh, teachers and administrators in New York City public schools are treating this, uh, and they do a lot of programming at this particular one school that I'm at. It's, very, it's a wonderful atmosphere, actually, and they have Pride Day every Thursday, for instance. Uh, yeah, it's very, very sweet, and they do a lot of work on the social curriculum, right, in, in talking about identity and all of the different facets that that encompasses. So I think, you know, it's not all doom and gloom, although there are parts of the country where it absolutely is dire at the moment. There's some some progress being made in ways to build structure around that kind of culture building. That's good. You're in a, a great school like that. Uh, we recently held a book club talking to some current student teachers. It was like a whole mix of people and it was mm. wonderful because a lot of the teachers and soon-to-be educators were like, yes, I have all these questions on how I can make a great space. It was very interesting having conversations about, you know, how can they push boundaries to make a safe space for students while also being able to keep their jobs so they can pay the bills. And it's really hard when you don't have supportive administration backing you on making these decisions. This is is so true. It goes back to structures. And we're talking about this a lot these days. We talk about something like racism being systematized. And it's the same for, for anything as we're looking at the big structures and seeing that the types of barriers to access or the types of exclusionary policies that are baked into these structures are very difficult to change without completely dismantling. And so it does take somebody at the very top of that structure to make a radical decision in order for anything to change. And in some cases, like with public schools, it's not you can't just make that decision on your own. You have also big funding bodies or larger regulating organizations to contend with as well. Yeah, it's such a big job, but it's also something that can be worked on from both sides. So we have these big structures with leadership needing to to make decisions, but we also have the teachers who are the front line and the, the ground level of that who can be doing things on a grassroots basis. And that can be principals and assistant principals, administration and decision-making at the school level as well. And I think hyper-local ecosystems can exist within these larger structures that are subversive of or uh, in some way resistant to these larger structures. I think we see that in lots of different spheres in why not education. Kind of going off of this, I think it would be really important for educators and for people to know, because we want to grow, Carrie and I want to grow our our knowledge of resources to share and promote. Are there resources that you would recommend either for like the community or students or educators to actively support that are doing really, really great work? Let me give this some thought. Um, a couple of my favorite sort of more general support organizations, the Trevor Project is a LGBTQ plus youth crisis hotline. That's just a really amazing resource, an amazing organization doing life-saving work. One that I like to recommend, especially, I get a lot of people asking me, oh, you know, my kid is coming out. My kid is non-binary. I don't understand. What do I do? I always send them to PFLAG. PFLAG is an organization uh, that was founded by the mother of a gay man who came up to her in his youth, and she realized there was a lot of need to support families of LGBTQ children in their desire to affirm and support their their child. There are chapters all over the country, and they do amazing work as well. 
So lately, a lot of my work with middle school students and also in other sort of pursuits at the grad center in sort of beefing up my pedagogy education have really brought me in down a pedagogy of the oppressed to Paulo Freire and all of the people that came after him uh, that really try and, and write to the pursuit of education as liberation. So Bell Hooks was actually one of the authors who really pioneered this and, and specifically for uh, from a with a black lens. So I'm making my way through Bell Hooks teaching to transgress at the moment, which is it's just been not eye-opening transformational. I mean it's a lot of stuff that we already know intuitively just from maybe having gone through educational systems that aren't like that or seeing it happen. Within the book there are also these sort of case studies and there are also conversations that she reproduces. Uh, with other thinkers, where some of these ideas are really unspooled at great length um, and in depth, and I think it's a fascinating book. Um, I just want to mention a couple of other sort of general support organizations, and not necessarily for youth, but here in New York City, and, and I always say this, is like just looking locally is really important because there will be always organizations in one's community that have specific priorities uh, that they know are present in their own uh, populations. For example, in New York, we have the Marsha P. Johnson Foundation and Sylvia Rivera Law Project and the Ali Forney Center, who are supporting Black and trans people. The Ali Forney Center specifically are supporting LGBTQ youth um, who are at risk of homelessness or who are housing insecure. And there are a lot of other of larger organizations, but I love to mention the grassroots ones because I think it's really important to support grassroots organizations in one's own community. Every city has a center, right? Every large major city will have an LGBTQ center where you can sort of start there and find a lot of different resource threads. And ours here in New York is really wonderful. There's also one in Brooklyn. There's also one in Queens. So, you know, there's a, there's also that kind of support um, that should be definitely sought out. So cool. We've been talking about kind of your very mixed background of vocal performing and arts admin, and then the work that you're doing in education. What advice do you have for early career musicians? And musicians that are looking to diversify their career path like you and your friends when you started chamber queer kind of like find those sections that really resonate with you and create a new project so what advice would you have hmm. well so so there's sort of two questions there right like advice for people looking to diversify their career path and also who are interested in sort of maybe making a new project of their own creative project of their own okay so for Early career musicians who are seeing a need for or looking, you know, looking for ways to diversify their career paths, I think an important thing to consider is where the need is coming from. And a lot of the times it's from subsistence, like you need to pay your bills. But sometimes it's because that you have discovered an interest uh, that may be related to your field or maybe it is not that you feel is fulfilling and you would like to pursue at, to greater depth. I would say that those are the, maybe the common sort of breeding grounds for this type of decision that I perceive. So figuring out what that needs to be for you, is it a parallel career? Is it sort of a half and half situation? Is it a part-time job alongside a primary artistic practice or vice versa? That is a time management question. It's also a values question to some extent, you know, and a personal sort of you know, where do you see yourself in 15 years kind of question too, or maybe five years as well, right? And I think too, that figuring out what that is can also be helped along by some reflection 
on what your skills are, what you're interested in, because those might not be the same things, and what there's a need for with the market. And I hesitate to use capitalist language, but you know what what is needed right now. You know what work is available, or where is there a great need for something at the moment? And an intersection between those three sort of things, those three questions. If you can find an intersection of all three, that's the I guess that's the dream. So your skills, your interests, and sort of supply and demand, right? And amongst all of this planning and the sort of like, you know, aligning of your your goals and your two careers or your different pursuits, uh, there's also a big uh, need to assert some boundaries with yourself, I think. Uh, and that's something that it's hard to do. You know, it was hard for me as a, you know, an early career musician who wanted to just do everything, very hungry for experience, wanted to say yes to everything. There's also a bit of pressure to say yes to everything. But knowing, uh, I think, the answer to that question about what you want that that particular pursuit to occupy in your life, like a big part or a little part, helps you decide how much of any one thing you have time for or capacity for. And just realistic you know, a realistic understanding of how much you have to give in general, I think is a probably a lifelong process, but something that is worthwhile reflecting on as you sort of plan out how your career is going to look. I think it's really also important to have collaborators, artistic collaborators, but also supervisors or bosses who are sympathetic to your commitment to integrating these facets of your life. And it sounds impossible, but I don't think it is to find a boss who's like, I mean, even with a full-time job, it's your business, what you do at night and on the weekends, right? But it does, uh, you know, it it does take a little more of one's sort of life and time and, and energy sort of to, to be an artist. And so somebody who, who is sympathetic to that and for a need of a little flexibility is really nice to look for in a job, I think. And if you have the luxury to do that, that, that might be a factor in how you set up your career. Yeah, I think that kind of covers, you know, what I'd say starting out. And and also, I should say that when you're starting out, it might not be that you'll land your dream job right away, right? But there's so many things I did along the way to where I am now that I could not be where I am now without having learned those skills. Even when I took a job out of necessity or to fill a gap between the lean season, for instance, I spent nine months at a literary agency answering the phones and sorting the mail and looking through the slush pile. I mean, I love to read, so that was pretty fun, but like, it's not related to what I do, but it was, it was enriching in other ways. And it also taught me a lot about how an office runs, you know, which doesn't seem like it would be directly applicable to artistic practice, but it taught me a lot about administration, which is also something I do. So there's, there's always value if you can find it in jobs that don't necessarily feel related to where you want to end up. And you might also be stepping stones on a path to where you do. All great and wonderful. And then our final question for you that we ask everyone who comes on our podcast is what's on your music stand this week and how are you diversifying your stand, whether that's physical or metaphorical stand? Great question, Ashley. So lately I have I've had the great fortune to be asked to work a lot this spring. So hooray! <laughs> And yeah, so I just finished workshopping an opera with Tapestry Opera in Toronto. It's called R.U.R., A Torrent of Light. And it is a sort of speculative opera about the world in which AI uh, 
develop sentience and free will and things like empathy and asks a lot of interesting questions about what we think of that as humans, um, you know, morally and ethically. It's it's going to be a very interesting piece. It's going to go up in May, uh, late May and early June in Toronto. And so I'll, I'll head back in May to do that. So that is very much on my stand at the moment. A very cool piece by Nicole Lise, Canadian composer who works a lot in electronic music, electroacoustic music. So it's a very cool score. And I'm also joining The Crossing for a couple of tours this spring. We're going to be doing a new work by Stacey Garrup to poetry of Lydia Davis called In a House Besieged. And it fuses these writings by Lydia Davis into an extraordinarily unique libretto reflecting the fear and anxiety around the aging process, which I think we can all relate to in some way. It's very central to the human condition. I'm very excited to dive into that with them. So your second question, how I'm diversifying my stand is absolutely practical in some ways, just taking the opportunity to dive into this wide, wide world of music that has not seen the light of day very much in the last, you know, whatever, few centuries. And there's, there's a sort of public interest in getting it played more. But I also think for me, in general, the way that I expand my horizons is through reading. I read a lot. I love to read. And my interest in music and all my creative impulses come from really begin with literature. And so I, yeah, I'm on a couple of like daily poem mailing lists. Poets.org is wonderful at sending me uh, lots and lots of poets I would have never come across otherwise. And I do a lot of just browsing at the library and picking up books that I would previously maybe just pass by, but now I'm, I'm sort of actively and intentionally picking up books with authors' names I don't recognize and reading the dust covers, thinking, yeah, I can get into this. So that's been, it's sort of experimental. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's fun. It's good. And I'm also reading Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, finally, after waiting for it on hold at the library for like however long. Everyone's reading it. It's so great. And it really is a wonderfully sort of perspective shifting book that's helping me read other things and walk through life as well a lot more cognizant of that lens uh, on our society yeah that's all the sort of backdrop to the sort of metaphysical and and epistemological backdrop to what ends up on my stand (laughs) cool there um i don't know if you've already heard of castle of our skins they a couple i think it was last month they did a whole poetry like very short poems um yeah you see that i saw that oh they're so good the first one just like wrecked me it was great I was just like this is amazing mm-hmm. yeah cool. we're actually Chamber Queer is presenting Anthony Green in April that is great well thank you again so much for joining us it was great to thank be hang you. Out with you it's been a pleasure thank you for listening to Diversify the Stand to support us and our projects visit our website at diversifythestand.org and a huge shout out to Aris Jajarnet, who wrote the intro and outro music. The piece that we've been playing is Board Games for Two Trumpets and Fixed Media. Links to their website are in the podcast description. And as always, we ask our guests, what's on your stand?